Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It takes balls to actually stand in your pain. And I think that among all the people that I know who have suffered tremendous adversity in their life, and I know quite a few, those who do seem to grow they understand that, first of all, their tragedy was not some sort of divine blessing. It wasn't a good in and of itself. And second of all, I think it's very critical for people to understand that when you suffer a loss like that or a tragedy or an adverse circumstance like that, things are never the same. Like you cannot go back. You literally cannot go back. And that's really hard for us as people to grasp because I think that we are you know, we're evolutionarily programmed to want to feel safe and secure. And there are a lot of very good reasons for that. So if you suffer a significant loss, you have to be able to accept the fact, not approve of, but accept the fact that you cannot go back to the way that things were. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tim, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks for having me, Trini. Yeah, it is my pleasure. So um, I actually came across your story because you are one of our long-term listeners. And uh, when you wrote in to tell me everything that has happened to you in the last few years and then kind of how it all led there, uh, I was naturally very intrigued by all of it. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now? Of course. Um, so the best way to, for me to answer that question would be to go back to my childhood when I was born, I wasn't breathing and I effectively suffered a massive stroke, which resulted in uh, a case of cerebral palsy and epilepsy, which are pretty grim diagnoses at birth. Um, I was not given a very high likelihood of living at all. Uh, and so I spent the first couple of years of my life in intensive physical therapy, occupational therapy and so forth. And amazingly, over the course of a few years, I made something of a rather miraculous recovery. And uh, it became clear that I would not only be able to survive, I would actually be able to thrive, even though I would live with a chronic illness and disability for the rest of my life. And so I, as I progressed into my childhood, I was affected by these conditions daily, but I grew increasingly independent and it got to a point to where the disabilities were not particularly evident. They weren't particularly obvious. And that led me to make a decision which I now deeply regret, but which shaped how I lived much of my younger life. And that decision was to hide those conditions. Uh, because I was ashamed of them. I was ashamed that I was awkward, that I couldn't do a lot of the things that other kids did and so forth. And so I did everything in my power to hide them because I felt incredibly humiliated for living with disability, even though my parents were loving and I had a supportive environment. Um, living with such conditions can really take a toll on you. And when you're a young, impressionable child, the way that disabilities and chronic illness informs you really does a lot of damage to your confidence or it can and it certainly did with me and so I grew up um, hiding these conditions and when I was in high school uh, I went through quite a severe depression as a result of the loss of several friends quite tragedy in a short period of time losing friends to accidents and suicide and this sort of began an exploration of loss and grief and adversity, which has carried me through to this day. I began sort of in my own amateurish way as a young man, I began researching adversity and loss and grief. And I found that as a result of my own experiences with depression, with my own suicide attempts, with the own, my own losses and with my own disabilities that for some reason I seem to have this innate ability to speak to people in pain, to speak to people who were hiding themselves, who were buried in shame. And so uh, when I reached my 20s, I, I, had, I had grown up as an actor and singer. Uh, performance was one of the few things that I could do well physically. And so I, I thrived on that, went to drama school and worked as a professional actor and singer for a while. But after a number of years, I was burnt out and broke, as so often happens in show business. And so I ended up in corporate America for what I thought would be a few years, ended up being closer to nine years. And so um, 
that led to 2010, which uh, was one of the worst years of my life. My, my epilepsy had sort of resurged and gotten a lot worse. Um, I had lost a woman I loved. Several friends had died. I was buried in, in debt and so forth. And so I, I realized that if I didn't make some pretty significant changes in my life, I would end up um, in a pit of despair. So in 2012, I slowly began to pull myself out of that hole. And uh, about two years ago, after one hell of a lot of hard work and focus and determination and essentially learning new ways of living and experimenting on myself, uh, I left corporate America and I've lived uh, as a nomad all over the world ever since. And I've done some rather crazy things, including training at a, at a world-famous gym, living in a monastery, and writing very prolifically on adversity and loss. So I hope that, that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. and it, <laughs> as, as you might imagine, it raises uh, several other ones. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned this childhood where you're dealing with, you know, effectively what appear to be somewhat like life-threatening illnesses, but you make a, a recovery that is somewhat miraculous. I'm curious... You know, and maybe it's hard for you to even comprehend because you were so young when it happened. But I'm wondering internally, uh, you know, mindset-wise, what enables that sort of determination, uh, especially at that young of an age? That's a really good question. I will say that having CP and epilepsy as a young child, um, and I was also an only child. I, I had a brother who died when I was young, so I grew up as an only child. And I will say that living with those kinds of conditions definitely sort of entrusted me with this extremely ferocious internal resolve to do everything on my own. And that did get me into trouble at times. It definitely, uh, it definitely didn't always work because we can't do anything in this life alone. However, uh, I, I found that going back as far, as far back as I can remember, I had this extremely, uh, strong-willed, ferocious determination to not be helped, to not have other people do things for me, because I was not going to be a weakling. I despised the thought of being pitied. I despised the thought of being looked at as a sort of other, as a, as a disabled person, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that having those conditions, um, while I did feel tremendous shame and, and fear as a result of them, I also think that they did in a in a very sort of crazy way, they did inform my confidence and sort of laid the foundations for me doing many of the things that I'm doing now, especially because I do talk about them very openly and they are now intrinsic parts of my story as they must be because they are intrinsic parts of who I am. So that ferocious determination, I mean, I think that uh, to me that that's an essential quality to achieving anything of great significance. Uh, but I'm curious, do you think it's something that people can develop without having to go through what you have? And do you think that it is inherently built into certain people and not in others? Well, I do think that certain people seem to have possibly genetic, biological predispositions to that sort of fearlessness. Um, I do think that some people probably have a stronger innate ability to conquer their fear with determination and will and such. However, at the same time, I definitely think that it is something that can be cultivated, but there's a huge caveat. The but is that it's really, really hard. And if you don't have an extrinsic catalyst, if you don't have some sort of life-shattering, life-altering event or set of circumstances, it's something that can be learned, but it requires, I think, an even, in some ways, an even greater level of self-determination. Uh, and one of the best ways to do that, I think, is to put yourself in intentionally constraining environments, intentionally challenging environments. This is something that I have spent the last several years doing, and there's no doubt that it has resulted in my success and the things that have happened to me. Um, so I, I do think that it can be learned, but it requires quite a high level of willingness to put yourself on the line simply because our cultural narratives are so predisposed uh, to 
engineer us to want to seek out what's pleasurable, to want to seek out what's easy. So I would simply say that if cultivating that sort of determination, that ferocity, that willpower, if that is important to you and you don't have um, an extrinsic catalyst um, like a disability or like some sort of tragedy, um, then you need to be willing to do things that are profoundly uncomfortable and in the process um, challenge your assumptions and your worldview and your own philosophy of life in ways that you're probably not going to want to and the people in your life are not going to want you to either. And that's a really significant part of it because the people in our lives often do not want us to change. They often do not want us to actually do the work that's necessary to engender radical transformation. Uh, but it's, there's no doubt that it's incredibly hard work. And anybody who says that it isn't is just full of shit. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would happen to agree. Um, a couple of questions that, that come from, from this, you know, and I, I do want to talk about the unusual environments that you've put yourself in, but I want to talk a little bit about, uh, the types of people who uh, experience post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress. You know, you've mm -hmm. mentioned that often it's one of these life-shattering experiences that enables this kind of growth or this kind of change. And I, I can tell you, you know, for me, the, the entire impetus for Unmistakable Creative was the fact that I didn't have a job after business school. That was sort of mm -hmm. my disastrous, probably nowhere as near as life-shattering as yours moment. But I realized now I'm like, yeah, no, I don't know that I would have been as motivated to do what I have if it hadn't been for that. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, what do you think it is that separates the people who, um, actually experience growth after something life shattering versus the ones who don't? Well, I think that first of all, um, it's really important for people to understand that when you suffer some sort of tremendously adverse circumstance, whether it's a loss, an injury, financial calamity, whatever it is, it's really important to understand that. There's nothing, you don't have to believe that there's anything inherently good about that circumstance. You don't have to um, bow down to the cultural narratives which insist upon making everything work out in the end. And I have actually found that it is only through acknowledging the horrific reality of what you've gone through that you are therefore able to engender change and growth. Um, that's a very critical first step because our culture is heavily bent towards wanting to believe that things, everything happens for a reason or that there's some sort of divine purpose behind these sorts of circumstances. And the reality is there's not. And I think that the acknowledgement of that, really learning to live into that pain and not simply accept that your adverse circumstance was, I don't know, meant to teach you a lesson or some other bullshit like that. Um, it takes balls to actually stand in your pain. And I think that among all the people that I know who have suffered tremendous adversity in their life, and I know quite a few, those who do seem to grow, they understand that, first of all, their tragedy was not some sort of divine blessing. It wasn't a good in and of itself. And second of all, I think it's very critical for people to understand that when you suffer a loss like that or a tragedy or an adverse circumstance like that, things are never the same. Like you cannot go back. You literally cannot go back. And that's really hard for us as people to grasp because I think that we are, you know, we're evolutionarily programmed to want to feel safe and secure. And there are a lot of very good reasons for that. So if you suffer a significant loss, you have to be able to accept the fact, not approve of, but accept the fact that you cannot go back to the way that things were. And I find that the people who truly weave a new mosaic for themselves, who, who actually find new life after tragedy, are those who actually come to a place of acceptance, again, not approval, but acceptance of the fact that they cannot will their lives back to how they were before the circumstance took place. I think that's very, very important as well. And then in that acknowledgement, I think, therefore, are found the seeds of what eventually result in service, in the gifting of yourself, however broken, however pained, however wounded to others, and in finding meaning. Um, meaning is something that I think we all strive for inherently. And 
it's really hard to find meaning if you haven't actually fully acknowledged what you've gone through and allowed yourself to grieve the enormous loss that you've faced. And so people that I know who have really um, achieved what you would call post-traumatic growth go through a series, a long process of acknowledgement, of understanding that, that they will never be able to go back to how things were and understanding that their life will need to be new. It will need to be uncertain. It will, it will be entirely be a journey of change and adaptation. And that's really scary for people. Whereas people who often end up completely shattered by their loss indefinitely, often they don't have sufficient support systems. That's very important. But also, they often simply cannot ever allow themselves to grieve because they're so terrified of what they will see if they actually have to confront themselves. And that's something that loss simply does to you. Loss forces you to confront yourself. The mirror is never far. And that's why we tend to try to numb things away. We try to avoid things. We try to shame our losses. We try to you know, numb them away with all sorts of agents. We try to do anything we can to not acknowledge what we have gone through. But paradoxically, that doesn't actually heal anything that generally only increases feelings of humiliation and shame and fear. And then people end up extraordinarily trapped and they end up where, to, to borrow from our friend Christina Rasmussen, they end up in the waiting room. They end up paralyzed by fear and they often never come out of it. And that's just a fact. People often never come out of it. And so it's, it's a complicated process. It's not easy. But having known a lot of people who have lived some really hard lives and who, but who are still doing some extraordinary things in the process, um, if there's anything that does seem to, to bind them all together, if there does seem to be a common thread, it is an acknowledgement of the reality of their pain, first of all, and second of all, understanding that they're going to have to build an entirely new life in the wake of whatever has befallen them. And that's a really scary thing to face, but it's so vitally important. So you mentioned multiple times um, during that monologue that there's a difference between acceptance and approval, and I'd like for you to expand on that. Yeah, so I think that people often have a very difficult time with the word acceptance because they think that it means that you have to approve of whatever has befallen you as in you have to say you have to weave it into your narrative of your life into your sort of life story and say well my husband died and if I'm approving of it then that means that somehow it was meant to be or somehow it it played a, a vital role in my growth and it had to happen otherwise I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now and that's nonsense acceptance is simply acknowledging reality for what is. And sometimes what you see in reality is a whole lot of pain or a whole lot of shit. And so acceptance is really, really hard, a uh, true acceptance, because you're simply acknowledging what is, what is actually real. And the thing is, is we are very good at deluding ourselves. This is something that I did for years. I didn't want to really admit, like really come to terms with, really acknowledge and accept the fact that I will live with a disability and a chronic illness for the rest of my life. And unless there's some cure that comes about during my lifetime, that is not going to change. So I accept that. I accept that when I wake up in the morning, I might have extraordinary neurological symptoms that make me want to go crazy. Or I accept the fact that uh, if I run for more than a few minutes, my right side is going to start to fatigue and I'm going to feel pretty shitty. I accept those things. I don't approve of them in that I don't believe that they are somehow necessary or that they had to happen or, in order for me to live a, a fulfilling or productive life. And I think that's a very critical distinction to make. Acceptance is actually harder and it's actually more crucial because acceptance points us to acknowledging reality for what it really is versus what we hope it is or want it to be or wish it were. What do you think distinguishes the people who manage to uh, accept of things and those who are looking to approve of them? 
I think, first of all, the people who truly accept their life circumstances, acknowledge and are actually ready to grasp the fact that sometimes life is really hard and that life can be brutally difficult and that loss itself is not some sort of test. It's not a lesson. It's not a gift from God. It's just loss and it sucks. And people who are able to say, you know what? This happened in my life. This adverse circumstance is really pulling me down and it sucks. It fucking sucks. But the people who are willing to really say that and really express that generally are those, and I've seen this time and again, those are the people who generally build up extraordinary foundations of empathy and compassion and solidarity with others and are willing to give of themselves in their weakness, in their brokenness. Whereas the people who feel that they might have to approve of all of their circumstances often obsess endlessly over, the, over what things mean and, uh, and, and, they get, and they often feel extraordinary shame because they feel like they're being punished somehow, whether divinely or not, or they feel like they just have nothing but bad luck in life. And, they, and these are the people that generally end up allowing life to simply happen to them. And they, and they lose their inner agency and they lose their sense the actual control that they do have, right? So I'm talking about, you know, what the Stoics refer to as the inner citadel. It's that, it's that inner will, it's that inner resolve that, that no one, that no circumstance can ever take away from you. The people who get caught up in, in approval or worrying that, 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 that approval is, is somehow synonymous with acceptance generally lose that inner resolve and they allow life to happen to them and they don't actually fully take responsibility for who they are and for their actions in light of their loss. Because you don't take responsibility for the loss itself. If, you're, if your husband is killed tomorrow, you don't take responsibility for that. It happened. It's terrible. There's nothing you can do to change that. But you take responsibility for how you choose to live in the wake of that loss by coming to a place of acceptance rather than rather than being buried in fear or shame or wondering what you did to deserve it or wondering whether you're being punished for it or what have you. Why do you think people confuse responsibility and blame? That's a great question. I think, first of all, um, you know, the phrase take responsibility in general, I mean, I'm all for taking responsibility. The problem, though, is that it's, it's the sort of phrase that's really, really easy to say, but it's much, much more difficult to action. And that has a lot of parallels with blame in the sense that, I mean, first of all, um, our Western, very rampantly individualistic, materialistic culture doesn't help in this regard because we are taught from a young age that we do have um, a higher degree of control over circumstances than we, than we really do. And so people often, when they, when, they, when they make choices, when they quote unquote take responsibility for what's going on in their lives and then things don't work out according to plan, which of course they rarely do in this life, um, they are often buried in self-sabotage and guilt and fear because people, here's the thing, most people spend inordinate amounts of time worrying and obsessing over things that they have no control over um, and devoting much less time to that which they do have control over. And so if you spend your life obsessing over what you don't have control over, it is inevitable that you're going to end up blaming yourself and being paralyzed by guilt and fear and blame when things don't go the way that you think they will because you're not actually understanding that, I mean, look, at the end of the day, we are, we're all individuals. There's 7 billion of us. None of us really matter in the scheme of things. And that's actually a very liberating, a very liberating concept. But we, we often believe that we can somehow uh, engender the universe to our will. And we usually, when we, when we think those things, we're usually thinking about, about things or concepts or ideas in our lives that we have no control over rather than focusing on what it is that we do actually have control over and learning to make those distinctions, I think is what brings about a healthy sense 
of responsibility versus blame. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you talked earlier about um, the decision to hide and I can't help but think that so many of us do that in our lives in small ways and in big ways uh, in every single thing that we do. Um, And I think I'm as guilty of it as anybody. I know there are moments when I'm like, I want to say something and I think a thousand people are going to hear me say that. So I'm not going to say it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm curious, uh, you know, one, I'd like to hear a little bit about how that's manifested in your life, um, how you stop doing it. And more importantly, how other people stop doing it. That's a great question. I think that hiding is the result of almost unimaginable amounts of suffering in this world. Uh, It is. And the thing about it is that it is, a silent scandal. It's not something that you really see, of course, because you're hiding and the people around you are hiding. And so it's very difficult to spot both in others and often in yourself, because we often end up laying, layering ourselves in layer upon layer of lies and fear and anxiety. And I would say that in my case, um, I, I began to understand in my 20s that the only way that I would be able to really authentically relate to the world and take my stand in the world was if I was extraordinarily public and open and vulnerable about my weaknesses. I mean, people ask me all the time, like how I've gotten to where I've gotten now. And my answer is very not sexy at all. It's not like I suddenly became confident overnight. It's just that I have learned to find strength in my weaknesses and love in my vulnerabilities and, and an acceptance of my limitations and in working within those limitations. Um, hiding is a very, very pernicious destroyer of dreams. It destroys relationships. It destroys lives. And I think that one of the most important things you can do if you want to hide less, because it's a constant process. It's like fear. You're never going to get over your fear 100%. You're never going to completely reveal yourself to the world either. But one of the, one of the most important things you can do is to actually take stock of your own weaknesses and your vulnerabilities and share them in a spirit of love and solidarity. Because at the end of the day, we are hardwired for, for connection. This is a fact. We do deeply want to understand the consciousness of our friends and loved ones. We want to understand the hearts of our friends and loved ones. And one of the most effective ways to do that is to admit your weaknesses, is to admit where you are broken, is to admit your own limitations, and to, and to be willing to share of them openly. I have the privilege of being able to do that in writing, and that's largely the focus of my writing. But there are many mediums by which you can express yourself that way. And I think it's also vitally important to understand that there is an element of risk inherent in everything, including in hiding. Hiding itself is very risky because you are quite literally choosing, whether you're doing it subconsciously or not, you are choosing to not reveal yourself to the world, which means that thousands or potentially millions of people are not being given the opportunity to participate in your story and be, and be served by your work and be served by what it is that you feel you're here to do. And so um, I think that, I mean, in my case, I simply got to the point where my life had literally become unacceptable. I was, I, w- I was hiding everything. I was hiding my talents. I was hiding my fears. I was hiding my vulnerabilities. I was living a, a literal facade because I thought that my weaknesses and my limitations, my disabilities, all of that made me look like a loser. But I realized that it was actually the inverse. It was the opposite. It was only when I actually began to embrace those weaknesses and limitations and all of that, that I found strength and confidence and perseverance and compassion and empathy. And that led me to be able to do all these crazy things that I'm doing now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. How do you draw the line uh, between not hiding and uh, being kind of a hot mess, if that makes any sense. Mm, absolutely. That's a really good question. I think, well, first of all, I would say that I do think, <laughs> the funny thing is, is that most, most people who we would categorize as hot messes are themselves, in fact, hiding tremendously. Um, so they might, be, they might be talking about their worries or their anxieties or their fears. They might be willing to share of them, but they're not taking a chance by telling the story of who they are underneath those layers of fear and anxiety and worry in the sense that if you walk up to a hot mess, they're probably going to whine and complain again, generally regarding things that they have no control over. And they're going to give you the sense that they have no control over their lives and that they're not able to take responsibility. Um, However, um, choosing not to hide, it's not a matter of simply laying everything completely bare in one fell swoop. It's a process of identifying probably a few key areas in your life where you are hiding and where you know instinctively that you should not be hiding and gradually beginning to express them via a medium or several mediums of your choosing. Um, And many of the most unmistakable people in our space who do that, for example, have done that through a very gradual process. Somebody like James Altucher is a wonderful example of this, right? He's he is he, he literally lays his life bare, but he doesn't he hasn't done this all in one fell swoop. He's done this 
um, over, over a period of time as he has built trust with a following and with his readers and probably with those in his, in his own inner circle and, his, and in his own life. So I think that, I think first of all, acknowledging the fact that if you are vulnerable, if you choose to share of yourself a story that people have not heard before, that doesn't automatically make you a hot mess. I think people jump from zero to 100 way too quickly. Um, it's a matter of identifying what it is that you can't, you can't afford to hide anymore mm-hmm. versus, oh, I'm just going to let it all out. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it to me is a distinction between doing what you do uh, from a place of service or doing it from a place of seeking pity. Absolutely, absolutely, and doing things from a, from a place of, of of trying to seek out pity or you know playing a sort of victim mentality. Um, it's it's emptying, it's exhausting, it's self perpetuating. Um, Whereas doing things in a spirit of service is inspiring, it engenders empathy, it engenders compassion, it engenders love, and it, and it also, um, it really binds you to other people in extraordinary ways. So I don't, you know, when I, when I open my mouth and I say that I live with disabilities or, or I say that several friends of mine died or I talk about my own suicide attempts or any of those things that happened in my life, I am not saying in any way, shape, or form, pity me, because that's the last thing in the world that I want. And that was paradoxically one of the reasons why I hid all those things for so long, because I didn't want any pity. And so instead, though, I recognize that there are millions of people out there who are terrified to let these kinds of common experiences out. Maybe not everyone has cerebral palsy, but everyone has something that they're hiding that they don't need to be hiding. And so if, if... I can, as an act of service, offer these stories and offer this, offer this part of myself to others such that they might be inspired to do the same, then, then I will have accomplished more, more than I've ever set out to do. Because at the end of the day, all of us, it doesn't matter whether you're just starting out in life or whether you're already massively successful or whatever, all of us, every time anyone writes a blog post or gets on a stage, or speaks in front of people, or just has a very, very open and vulnerable conversation with someone that they've been uncomfortable around their entire lives. Every time someone does that, they're taking a risk. They're taking a chance. They're opening themselves up to the possibility of being hurt, and they're opening themselves up to the possibility that things might not go the way that they planned. We need a lot more of that in this world. And the only way that that happens is if you do it yourself. You don't wait around for someone else to tell you that you should or that you can or that it's your turn or whatever. You simply have to start doing it and seeing what happens. That's what bears fruit. So you've made reference to um, your own suicide attempts multiple times throughout this conversation. So obviously there's no way I was going to let you get away with not talking about it (laughs) since you know me well enough to know that. Um, Let's talk about it. I mean, you heard me ask this question to Wes Chapman. um, Yeah. And I'm curious. I mean, what drives any human being to that point of darkness? So I think that most people who commit suicide have reached a literal point of hopelessness, which compounds and feeds upon itself because you are literally in a state, in a, in a state of mind, as a result of circumstances in your life, as a result of, of genetics, as a result of some combination of, the, of both, you often find yourself completely, I mean, literally unable to imagine a life for yourself in which there is any peace or contentment or hope or happiness or purpose. And everything that leads up to a suicide attempt, the hopelessness, the despair, the feeling that you are quite literally stuck in an abyss that you cannot remove yourself from, it's self-perpetuating. I mean, depression as a disease is very much like that. It's like a parasite. It's like you're being infested by a parasite. And the thing is, you know intellectually, a lot of the time, you often know that it's ridiculous, that it's not serving you, that it's 
that it isn't serving a purpose that's going to help you. You know that intellectually, but it doesn't matter. It convinces you otherwise. It's almost like your mind begins to start playing these tricks on you in which you literally believe that there is no other way of existing other than in a state of hopelessness or despair. And if you get to that point, which sometimes external circumstances can, sudden death, paralysis, disability, um, financial calamity, um, if you get to that point, um, it becomes almost impossible, not impossible, but it becomes almost impossible to see a way out. And if you don't see a way out, then you see, then you begin to view life as a tragedy. And if life is inherently a tragedy, then suicide almost seems like the logical outworking of what has led you to that point. And that is a terrifying, debilitating prospect. And it's scary as shit. It was scary as shit for me. But I, when I was, I was 17, when I tried, I attempted it twice. Thankfully, I failed miserably both times. But when I attempted it, I was utterly convinced that there was no purpose for my life and that I could not bear the thought of living another 50, 60, 70 years just consumed with nothing but nothingness. It's, it's, it's almost like your life is itself nothing. It just, it's, it's just, there's nothing there for you. It's only the pain. That's all you feel. And people that are led to that point generally convince themselves or are convinced through a series of experiences that there, there's, there's no way out. You're trapped. And if you want to end that pain, you end your life. Hmm. So after um, your suicide attempts, by the way, how old were you when both of them happened? You mentioned 17 as one of them. When was the other one? Um, it, was, it was the same year. Was, oh, wow. Yeah. 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 It was in my junior year of high school. So Twice after that, mm-hmm. how did you start to see a way out? <sighs> Interestingly, it was, it was through service to other people that I wasn't even really aware that I was providing. And in this sense, so I mentioned that I do believe that one of my greatest gifts is this strange innate ability to help people in pain. And it's obviously the focus of my writing. But from the time that I was young, people came to me for counsel, for advice regarding their own pains, their own difficulties, their own trials. And when I was going through my own very severe depression, when I wanted to die, um, people actually began doing this more, even though I was by any sort of objective measure, I looked completely fucked up, but people, a lot of people seemed to identify with that somehow and wanted my help, wanted my counsel. And so I, I just offered it. And I, at first I wasn't, I wasn't even really aware of what I was doing. I wasn't doing anything. I was simply just, I was just acknowledging people's pain. I wasn't trying to fix them. I wasn't trying to change them. I was just listening. I was acknowledging and I was offering what counsel I could. And over time, that sort of snowballed. And I think that in my case, I realized that even if my life felt like shit, and even if my life felt like there wasn't much of a way out, for some reason, I could help other people. And that was enough to keep me going and kind of sustain me for a while. And I think that in that process, very interestingly, through the process of serving other people in their pain, I actually began to fully grieve my own losses and grieve what I had been hiding and shaming for so many years. Um, because I had been doing everything I could, as you know, to, to, avoid, to avoid exposing myself or, or talking about my losses. And so really more than anything, what pulled me out, what helped me to graduate high school and then to move on to New York and live an adult life worth living was service to others in the midst of their pain. So somehow I was able to use 
the pain that I had, the tremendous, utter, debilitating pain that I had to serve other people. And I'm eternally grateful for that. I'm not grateful for the losses that I endured, but I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the fact that I was able to use my brokenness to engender love and understanding in the brokenness of other people. So let's do this. Um, let's shift gears because we've been talking a lot about your past and now I want to kind of bring it forward a little bit. You know, you mentioned in 2012, uh, you started to make changes that led to kind of all these crazy adventures. I want to talk about, you know, one, how you started rebuilding confidence and two, you know, what those changes were and then talk a little bit about, uh, some of the lessons that you've learned from being put in environments that make you incredibly uncomfortable. Absolutely. You want me to just dive in? Yeah. Okay. So in, yeah, in 2012, basically what happened was I did a fairly dramatic overhaul of my entire life. Right. So I was, I was very ill. I had, um, I was, I, I have a very medication resistant form of epilepsy. We had just found a treatment that was starting to work. I was 50 pounds overweight. I was, depressed. I was buried in debt. So I just started making these rather bold decisions and I was terrified at the time. And thankfully I had a few really wonderful friends who stood by me and acknowledged me and didn't let me falter. And so I, I moved from one apartment, which was very expensive to another that cost half as much. I dramatically reduced my savings and spent two years living off of 50% of what I earned. I, um, fully allowed myself to grieve my losses. I seeked out therapy. I started, I started researching things like post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress much more prolifically. I started writing much more, much more prolifically. And then I just, I, I started taking small bets, little bets. I started reaching out to uh, some of the people who you and I both know who have influenced both of us. And very strangely, some of them actually responded to me and I started to build friendships because I knew that I needed to get the hell out of corporate America. I knew that um, I wasn't just going to waste away. And so I started building friendships with people like Chris Gillibo and Julian Smith and other people who ended up advising me and still do to this day. And that really helped to, to solidify my, my confidence. And I, and I also, um, I actually, you know, researched, um, the science of habit formation and such. And I got healthy again and I just started living a, a much more constrained and limited life. And I found that the more limited and constrained my life got, the happier I seemed to be. And so that led up to two years ago when I left my job. And when I did that, um, I, all I knew was that I wanted to write and I wanted to do something that mattered and I knew that I would make less money, and I knew that I had no idea how whether it would go according to plan. But I had reached the point where I knew that the I, I had this sense that the world was ready for my gifts in some sense. And so I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to launch a blog, if I'm going to try and write professionally, if I'm going to try and consult professionally, if I'm going to try and do all these crazy things, I need to put myself in some environments that are very, very challenging. Uh, because I don't want to just fall into complacency. Because one of the things that people, you know, people often talk about how being an, being an entrepreneur is difficult and that it takes time and all that is true. But another thing that is often not spoken about is the fact that just adjusting to post-corporate life is itself a very difficult and often painful adjustment because you're used to being in an environment where you're following rules, where everyone's telling you what to do, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden you have complete freedom and that sounds amazing and it is, but that itself is an adjustment. And if you don't have the, the necessary discipline and fortitude and focus, you're just going to fall flat in your face. And so I launched my journey by going to Jim Jones, one of the world's craziest, most elite gyms. I never thought in a million years they would take me as a client, but they did. And it was amazing. And that, that was actually how I launched my post-corporate career. And that taught me more than anything, the value of fortitude and discipline and perseverance and it quite literally taught me that you can achieve things that you did not think were possible because I did a, a whole host of things physically that physiologically should have been impossible. And then I just started 
I started traveling and it rocked my world. I moved to Asia for a while and I, and I traveled all over the place. And then I, um, I started writing more prolifically and people actually started paying attention and people wanted my help and people that I really admired and respect wanted my help and sought out my counsel. And that led to more confidence. And then I always had this dream. I, I had, I had visited many monasteries over the years for brief periods. I had, I had always had an interest in monasticism. And, and so, um, last year there was this, there is this program that uh, is very rare. It's, it's one of the rarest programs in the world for this kind of thing where, um, a monastery in Boston invites a handful of people to come and live alongside them, um, for a year of residency. And so, uh, I applied to the program last year, again, not knowing what to expect, but, um, they, they decided to take me on and I went and I lived in a monastery for four months, which was, um, even though it was physically exhausting, was uh, one of the most centering and beautiful experiences of my life. And so all I can really say is that my confidence has compounded and grown exponentially as a result of me being really, really scared, but just choosing to do shit and just keep doing shit. And understanding that I can't force outcomes, I can't, I can't control exactly how my life is going to go, but I can choose how I'm going to spend my time. And I simply got a lot better at spending my time wisely. And that happened as a result of living a life really of constraint, of minimalism. I have very few possessions. I make less money than I used to, but I'm 10 times happier because of the fact that I have chosen to live a life of actual intention rather than just letting life happen to me. Hmm. Well, uh, Tim, I want to talk about the very last part of your story, which is, as you know, finally what got my attention and, you know, I mean, you've had some crazy things happen, uh, in the last couple of weeks. And I, I feel like if we stopped here, we'd miss out on one last part of this story that I think everybody needs to hear. Okay. So in October, I was living in residence at, uh, at the monastery, and I had been blogging um, on my blog, The Adversity Within, um, but really just doing it um, as a service to a small but loyal group of followers. And uh, in mid-October, I wrote a piece called Everything Doesn't Happen for a Reason, which was really an indictment of platitudes and uh, which contains some very, very strong feelings on our culture's response to grief and loss. And um, I didn't think anything would happen with it, but um, within a week of me publishing the piece, um, it had been shared uh, tens of thousands of times, and within two weeks it had been shared uh, well over a half a million times, and suddenly I was exposed to, quite literally, I was exposed to a few million people in a very short period of time, which happened while I was living in a monastery with no marketing whatsoever. Um, and this experience, you know, has resulted in numerous opportunities, um, many of which I'm exploring now, all kinds of work requests, lots of writing assignments, a much, much larger and much, much more devoted audience. Um, and never in a million years did I think that anything like that would happen. Um, but it did, and it has sort of catapulted my trajectory and allowed me to reach a significantly larger audience addressing the very same themes that I am most passionate about and which I feel most called to explore and, um, and offer to the world. So, so everything doesn't happen for a reason going viral was simply the result of me taking a risk by writing a piece because every piece is an act of risk as far as I'm concerned and throwing it out there and not expecting anything in return. And never in a million years could have I expected that this would happen. And um, I realize how utterly fortunate I am, uh, but this is what happened. This is, this is what's been given to me and I now intend to use it for good. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Tim, this has been phenomenal. Uh, I re- really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us. So one last question, which I know you've heard me ask, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? 
I think I'd say this. It seems to me that among those I know who I would consider to be unmistakable, they all seem to possess an almost pathological willingness to act in the face of fear. Um, those who seem to be un most unmistakable to be doing truly remarkable things in their life, they're not necessarily the smartest, they're not necessarily the wealthiest, they're not necessarily the most talented, but they are willing beyond what I have ever seen to be scared and act anyway, and to do it over and over and over again as an act of service to themselves and to the world. Awesome. Well, um, like I said, this has just been phenomenal and, uh, I, I really, really am happy you reached out to me. Uh, and I really appreciate, you know, you're willing to come and share your story and your journey and your insights with our listeners. Well, thank you so much, Serena. It means the world to me and you know, I'm a huge fan of the show, so it's, it's quite an honor. Cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that next week on the unmistakable creative. In order to truly uh, express, to, to, in order to truly communicate and reach, communicate to and reach your audience, you must gain their trust. You must create an authentic sense of intimacy between yourself and them so that it feels like there is no fourth wall and that you're speaking the same language and you're within the same story. And I know that I mean, it's ingrained in us to the point where you must create this trust and intimacy and the sense of affection, and you must also take care of your audience, meaning that you can't have scenes that are jarring and aggressive and painful simply to, for shock value or to show off your skills with, you know, talking about painful experiences. You must earn the audience's uh, presence. You must earn your way to that point of pain. Writer and visual artist Rima Zaman joins us to talk about using her art to be a voice for others. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.